Lauren, would you come and read from Mark 14? That was a little abrupt transition, wasn't it? (laughs) Thank you for being here. We're ready as we turn our minds and our hearts to God's word for us today. I believe he'll speak in a way that we need to hear. Good morning. Our passage today is from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. So if you'd like to follow along in your own scripture text, please turn there or scroll there now. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. No more Mark 13. (laughs) Deep breaths. Your eyes and body language last week told me to move on. But admittedly, I'm also eager to move into this passage, one of my favorite accounts in all of Mark And maybe you'll see why, maybe you agree with me. Maybe that will seem surprising to hear. Although with the week that we've had and what we've just reflected on, uh, lingering in a passage, Mark 13, uh, reminding us of the coming king, the one who was going to come and make all things right, would not also have been a bad place to remain. But moving to Mark 14, and ask this question. If you know that you already possess the most valuable thing in the world, How will that transform your relationship with other earthly treasures? I believe it will be radically different. Jesus taught like this in his parables, Matthew 13, famously, Matthew 13, 44 and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I believe this account in Mark that you just heard read is a living parable. Right along this, in the same vein as these parables of Jesus. Had these, had, had these parables been real, I imagine some of the same response or same questions from friends or family members or those that that heard of this extravagance. You did what? (laughs) What was so valuable about that field? You spent your life savings on a pearl? You know that's a mucus-encrusted grain of sand, right? Do you know what that money could have been used for? With scolding, perhaps, with judgment. People who respond this way are seen with really earthly eyes, worldly economy, Temporal perspective. 
But the man who bought the field and the one who bought the pearl and this woman who anointed Jesus, according to Jesus, are seen in a right way. They're seen with spiritual eyes. They're following a kingdom economy. They're possessing an eternal perspective. They're esteemed and honored when the world would say foolishness. But if you know that you already possess the most valuable thing in the world, how will that transform how you live? Jesus taught in Matthew 6, his famous Sermon on the Mount, verse 19. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust will destroy, where thieves will break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And that's led to much confusion. What would these treasures be? Can we have treasures in heaven? How would that look? Jesus is using hyperbole to say, what are the most valuable things in life? Not things that can possess or possess you, but eternal things. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. We hang on to that. I believe that applies significantly for this living parable in Mark 14. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This woman here in Mark 14, perhaps Mary, named in the account in John 12, but there's uncertainty because the details are different enough to make us question. And so we hold that with open hands and we receive the way Mark presents this woman. But it really, in all accounts, it's also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. This woman is honored and esteemed as knowing something, seeing something that so few others in the recent encounters with Jesus, even his disciples, they're not seeing, they're not perceiving. She is honored as a true disciple. And I think that's remarkable. How bold of Mark. Especially in that day when women's values were even far, far less than they are today. He elevates along with Jesus, does not shy away, that this woman is esteemed. As a contrast, really, even to the 12 who have been with Jesus and to the religious Pharisees that he's been interacting with, she is presented as a true disciple. How bold in, the in that current culture and context that Jesus often honors and elevates and empowers women. According to Luke's account, we might say this is even more bold because of what we know about her. Admittedly, not much, or at least with uncertainty of her exact identity. But in Luke's account, not naming her Mary, he calls her a sinner, or the Pharisees do. A well-known sinner at that. We're not told what her sins are. We could only surmise. Many have tried probably for their own self-justification reasons, because if we can prove that she is worse than my sins, then we can justify what she did that I need not do. Oh, of course, she is trying to, because of her sin, she is trying to earn her forgiveness, her grace, her salvation from Jesus to prove that she's worthy, to receive some form of honor. That makes sense. But the one who thinks like that is also trying to earn their own salvation through self-justification, just a different currency. Jesus alone esteems this woman while everyone else judges, scolds her, questions her, her motives, her character, and her actions. They deride her. 
Even the disciples, right? Even Judas. Judas is proclaimed as the one saying in, in the Luke account, or I believe it's the John account, you can double check. Couldn't this money have been used for the poor? He's the indignant one. But it seems that more, according to Mark, were thinking that or feeling that very same sentiment. Jesus saw it just as pretense. That's not really where their heart was. They simply could not grasp the value that she held in Jesus. There was something that led them to scratch their heads, to walk away, to wonder, to question. But she's presenting kingdom values, kingdom ethics. That's the upside down kingdom that Mark has been trying to present for us throughout. This is really nothing new. One of the most recurring storylines we've seen throughout Mark is how slow the spiritual perception is of these disciples who are living with Jesus and following him. They seem to get it, and then they express complete disbelief or a lack of spiritual perception. He continues to engage with them and rebuke them, but they're, but they're on process. They're progressing toward the kingdom more and more, and that's given all of us great hope as we see ourselves in these disciples. We can be faithful, we can walk in faith, and we can still miss it big time. And Jesus shows incredible patience and grace, sometimes frustration with his disciples. It seems, though, that while the religious leaders that we've encountered, the Pharisees, the ones who knew the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus taught from, they completely miss him as the Messiah, as the one to bring the promises. These disciples as well struggle to perceive, but not everyone in the story struggles to perceive. The ones that Mark calls out are the least likely ones. The poor, the widows, the hurting, the sick, the outcast from society, the marginalized. These are the ones that come to Jesus and express incredible faith, that are honored and esteemed, that astonish Jesus even. We've seen throughout the leper, the paralytic, the woman with the bleeding disorder, the father with the demon-possessed boy, the Syrophoenician woman, the blind, the deaf, the children who come to Jesus. In just the previous passage in chapter 12, when he, Jesus was in Jerusalem, he esteems this poor widow who gives just a couple small coins as giving an extravagant gift. She is the faithful one, not these others giving a, a radical extravagant gift. He diminishes or devalues knowing that they're, they were just doing so for show and pretense. So here we are in 14, and this woman also gives all that she has, almost certainly the most valuable possession that she owned. And she is esteemed as a true disciple. She will be remembered whenever the gospel is proclaimed. What did she know that led to this extravagant gift and offering? What did she perceive of Jesus that so many seem to miss? And perhaps we miss it also. It seems that she knew that Jesus' time was short. She believed that his, wor his words that he had been proclaiming, John, or Mark records them three times at least. Jesus proclaiming that he will go to Jerusalem, be arrested, and be crucified. And the response is either outright rejection. Peter took him aside the first time and rebuked him. Never, Lord. <laughs> this will not happen. The other times, it seems that they just kind of go silent and change the subject. This woman seems to fully embrace these words. She's anointing him for his death. That's what Jesus affirms. Some have seen the anointing of a king. That could be right also. But in this context, she's coming to anoint him for burial. And Jesus affirms that. 
She seems to embrace his coming death when even the disciples are saying, never, Lord, this will never happen. She gets it. She gets something in, in the story of what Jesus was, was going to do, what he must do, what must happen to him, and she embraced it. I also believe that she associates herself in this action with Jesus' death. She is coming with him to die. And I believe that's why he esteems her and honors her as a true disciple. She gets it. That her life that once was is being put to death in his death. And she is giving him life. We have an amber alert. As we often pause and pray for waves of response from our first responder team when they blare their sirens going by, we can pause and ask, Lord, for the quick return of this child, for the peace, for the desperation of the family that have lost them for this time or felt they've been taken. You know where this soul is. You know the tragedy that probably and the pain that probably surrounds this family. Would you bring miraculous healing and swift recovery for this family in need? Seems to be a theme. Help us be aware with spiritual eyes. Dear Jesus, amen. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, immediately following, I believe it's the first time he proclaims his coming crucifixion and resurrection, and where Peter rebukes him, never Lord. Here's what he says, Mark 8, 34. He calls the crowd and the disciples and says, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. It seems that many walked away from him scratching their head, maybe murmuring to each other. What does, he, what does he mean by that? It seems that this woman fell to her knees and embraced it. That's the action she takes here. She receives these words. Luke describes her as weeping already and wiping his feet with her tears. She's grieving with him. I believe twofold, as we often do. We come grieving that this happened, that this must happen, that his death would come. We lament loss and our part in it. We lament the brokenness of the world. We lament sometimes the decisions that we've made in our own sin. We come before him with this full emotion. She symbolically anoints him with this ointment, this perfume that's an extravagant gift, it's likely an heirloom. Many scholars believe it's been passed down from generation to generation, and it's used for the anointing of the dead within that family unit. Likely, it would be used for her. She would pass it to her children. And when she died, she would be anointed at her burial with this perfume. So it's, it's purity. It's beauty. It certainly was a rare gift, and that's what led to its extravagance, how much it would have cost. It's possible. Some have suggested this first time in my research that I saw this, after all, all the times I've read this passage and studied it, that some believe, this makes sense to me, that, that it, believe, it was believed to have a mystical almost power of healing or to usher the spirit of the soul uh, of those that died into eternal life or to bless them as they go. That there was something even more powerful about this that made it have extreme value. But nonetheless, because trying to get our heads around the value of this, we have to do a little bit of uh, cultural translation here, 300 denarii. 
the NIV, I think, does it for us, a year's wages. A denarii, or a denarius, was a, a day's wage for a common laborer, someone that would go out into the field or someone that would work with their hands for a living, which was most in that society, they would receive that as compensation. Now, if you, do tra- if you translate that to a year's wage, and we'll just take median income, I suppose, for, for laborers, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty to 60,000 U.S. dollars today. And she pours it all out in this act. She's giving all to Jesus. She's reserving nothing for herself. This, this is her death. This is her burial with Jesus. I think it's twofold. I think she is both saying, Jesus, you are worthy of all. I have nothing to, to withhold from you. This is my best. This is everything. And I think that's a, that's a right and good application. This passage asks us some powerful questions. Do I treasure Jesus like this is one. Do I, do I have the kingdom eyes and perspective that would willingly lay down all other things because he's the greatest treasure? I treasure him that much. I believe it goes deeper. I believe it's her awareness of her own death with Jesus and the life that she has in him that she says, you've already given me everything. You've redeemed me and restored me and re- renewed me. Perhaps the only man that has looked upon her and seen her value and esteemed her. And she joins him going to the cross in this way. An amazing, extravagant, beautiful gift. But let's ask those few questions that maybe we feel when we read this passage more than we hear. Do I treasure Jesus this much above all other things? And almost certainly, if we're honest, the answer is no. We reflect on our life the way we use our resources, time and money and energy and thought. And I I, I can't imagine that any one of us could genuinely say, I give more to Jesus and his kingdom than I do to my kingdom. I treasure Jesus more. There's so many things that we value, that we treasure, that consume us Things we possess that really possess us. If we consider what this ointment could represent, it makes us think of some other things. So it's extreme value. We have certain possessions that have extreme value. We might seek to protect them and keep them above all other things. Would we lay them down, give them away, give to the poor, like the rich man that Jesus asked Would you go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me because then I'll have your heart. When we think of potentially the the inheritance of this, the generation and generation, something passed down, it makes us think of uh, the more intangible possessions that we have. Some kind of, maybe it is, maybe it's some form of heirloom, but I'm thinking of more legacy type things, things that hold nostalgic meaning for us. Relationships, certainly, that we have that are not possessions, but we value. we value, and rightly value. And these things can be all rightly valued, but when we value them and esteem them and cherish them more than our place in the kingdom and our, our, our savior, our hearts borderline on idolatry. When we think of the healing nature, potentially, of this ointment, it's, it's possible also, not mentioned, that this kind of ointment, not only for the burial, would, would have been believed with that mystical power, would have been used in times of sickness or disease for loved ones. A little bit of it rubbed together, anointed for the healing 
of, of, some, of the infirmed. We think of our health, and it's right to care for our bodies and to steward our health, but some of us treasure that above all other things. And yet Jesus calls us to be willing to lay down our life in order that we would gain life. The Apostle Paul says, training our bodies, physical exercise is good. It's of some value. But godliness, training our spiritual souls is of eternal value. So perspectives. Some of us think of, when we think of this, this ointment being passed down to the next generation, we think of what we are passing down. The security we may be able to give children or the next generation. Or our legacy what we have done or accomplished in this world. We value more than possessions. We value our positions or our influence. There could be many, many things. And rather than taking the approach, which maybe you've heard this sermon, so give those things away. <laughs> Begin to give. I'm not sure that comes from a changed heart, but maybe a, a condemned heart or a guilty heart. I would rather say, how do we come to treasure Jesus so much that the treasuring of these other things fades? And how do we do that? We draw near to Jesus. We must draw near. Repeatedly throughout God's story is the, the proximity to him, the closeness to him. If we see him as he is, we come to know him, we will love him. As we come to love him, we will know him. And at that proximity will transform how we interact in this world, how we interact with possessions. How do we draw near to him? Some of it is simply rhythms of life, the way that we center our attention, some of the things that we can put in place. Some of it is doing so with others, drawing near to those that are drawing near and knowing that we are not alone. But a big part of it is also the way we draw near, seeing Jesus openly willing to say, I, I will see you as you truly are. And I, I know I probably don't because of the own filters of my, my experiences, my past, my context, my own knowledge. They get in the way often. But I want to come to you, Jesus, and let you be Jesus. Be the Jesus that you've presented yourself to be, not who others say you are. Certainly we can learn from others and, and glean from them. But we often tend to come to Jesus that he would fit our mold to be our savior, to do what we need him to do. And the only way we truly draw near to Jesus is to come humbly and say, be the God and the savior that you alone are. And I will come to worship you. I will come to draw near to you. Again, the picture, these pictures that Mark gives us throughout of those that drew near to Jesus, and I won't take the time today to recap every one of them, but think if you can, and some, for those, those that have been tracking with us in this journey, those that have come to Jesus in desperation, sick and hurting, outcast by society, drawing near in desperation, like the Father in, in Mark 9. That prayer that we've said resounds for us and we continue to pray, I think it would be a right prayer for us this day. Jesus, we believe. We believe you can help. We believe you can deliver. We believe you can heal. God, help my unbelief. We, we bring both. We bring faith and doubt together. We draw near to Jesus. This woman draws near to Jesus at his feet, anoints him, joins him in his death. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says to them something striking Certainly, he cares for the poor. I think there's an intentional 
use of, of, of his, his words here to make us pause and go, wait a minute, throughout the story, he's been caring for the poor and teaching us to care for the poor. And here he says, you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Again, this is an upside down kingdom way of thinking. It, it gives us hope that God's eyes are always on the poor. It hurts us that there will always be the poor, but it reminds us of our continual work to always serve the poor and to see the poor, but to recognize that he has... He has so much at his disposal. There's no, there's no lack. There's no scarcity mindset. There's an abundance mindset in the kingdom. But what we need to press into is what he was trying to teach them is you will not always have me. My presence is everything. These moments are short. The time is short. This woman got it. The time is short. Now, maybe she didn't know it was two days away before his crucifixion, but the time is short. May we live with that same response. I feel it more and more than ever, maybe just as I get older, but certainly looking into our world. The time is short. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We are not guaranteed a better future, however we assign what better looks like. But we have a king who has promised to make all things right. Can we be with him today? Can we experience his presence today? The time is short. Question number two. That's probably all I'm going to do today. Do you feel this one? I do when I read this. Do I really understand the gospel? I've been preaching it for the better part of my life. Do I really understand the gospel? Do you? How often have you heard me proclaim this story? When we come to it in scripture. Jesus says something that he doesn't say anywhere else, here and in Matthew, or about anything else. Truly I tell you, verse 9, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance. I think some of us who, who know this passage have read it. For those followers of Jesus, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you know you're commissioned to represent him, whatever language you want to use. Some of us are gifted in evangelism and making, making him known. It's just, it's easy for us to do. He's done so much for us, it's easy to make him known. Others of us deeply struggle with what that would look like with no condemnation. We're invited to make him known in our way according to our personality. If he's changed our life where we have opportunity to say, he's changed my life, we do so. Jesus doesn't say related to, now at least, you know, you build some arguments by silence. That's a weak foundation to build upon. But he doesn't ever use language like it. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, you'll speak of the cross. You'll speak of bloodshed. You'll speak of atonement. You'll speak of the resurrection. Or even you'll speak of my miracles. You'll speak of baptism. You'll speak of prayer. You'll speak of devotion. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't mention those things. He, he, he says... Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what this woman has done will be proclaimed. Now, he says wherever, not whenever. And so, no, I'm not pressing that we've never proclaimed the gospel or you haven't made it known without telling this story. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying either. Wherever. And some of us probably just get off the hook. Well, it's in the Bible, so as long as we bring the Bible to those that have never heard and have no access, then we're doing our, our job. This story will be told. They took it seriously, the gospel writers that heard this. And that said, shouldn't we also rightly say, am I missing something? <laughs> if this kind of story, if this story itself, or what it represents is not being proclaimed as what Jesus, it, it, it makes it a pretty big deal, that it, it seems central to the gospel. 
It's a living parable revealing the gospel. I, I think it would be like him saying when he taught the, parable, the, the, the story of the prodigal son, he didn't, but wherever the gospel is proclaimed, this story will be proclaimed. I believe he's saying something very similar here. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be proclaimed. It reveals the gospel so clearly it must be proclaimed. And perhaps not with these exact details, but with the reality of what is happening here. Certainly, her sacrifice, her generosity, her lavishness, her willing to lay down all earthly things to give to Jesus, that, that's a right good message we should wrestle with. Unless you're willing to lay down your life, take up your cross and follow me, you'll have no part in my kingdom. But whoever lays down his life and loses it will gain it. That seems like a message to proclaim. But I think it's deeper. I think it's what I've been articulating, that this woman embraces his death, receives it, gets it when so few others did, grieves that it must happen, but knows that it must, and believes the rest of his words, after three days I rise again. She embraces it and gives her, her, associates herself in her own death and her own burial as she anoints him. I believe she's received life from him. She knows who she is. She knows her sins. She knows her needs. She knows the way Jesus has seen her, esteems her, and honors her, loves her, and forgives her, cherishes her, and perhaps, again, the only man who ever looked at her for who she truly is, not what she had done as everyone else judged her, but who she was in heart and soul, made in the image of God. Here's the Luke passage, Luke 7, 47. Therefore I tell you, Jesus said, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loves much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. What he's saying there is those that don't consider their own sin very significant, then forgiveness doesn't really mean much to them. But those that know the depth of their need, that come to Jesus and find complete wholeness, they love much. They give much. Their life is truly transformed. The new has come. This is the gospel. And Jesus says in verse 50 in Luke 7, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the gospel. This is what's proclaimed. Have we received it and experienced it? Do we know our sin, our fear, our doubt? God does. I think we know it sometimes and try to hide it from him. Our shame. And for those that have been shamed, have felt hurt, abused, discarded, condemned, devalued, marginalized, and yet draw near to Jesus, draw near to his feet, receive him as Messiah, as Lord, as Savior, not the one we would want to make in our own image, but who he truly is, those who embrace his death and see it as their own, that we might find life through him, because life comes through death. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I have. I think this woman would say the same. My life is in him. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives through me. Now the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I believe she proclaims this with her actions. Because we know, and maybe even declare, what all was of me, what all was must die in order that I would be reborn and live again. Jesus looks upon those who come humbly, who draw near like this to him. He looks upon us 
and cherishes us, loves us, meets us, forgives us. Jesus, the greatest treasure, treasures you. All other earthly treasures will pale when we begin to receive this. He forgives you. He touches you and makes you clean. See, the Pharisees in Luke 7 said she's defiled, she's a sinner, and she's touching him. If he was such a prophet, he would know who touches him and not allow it. What we've seen throughout Mark is Jesus is not defiled by the sick, by the leper, by the sinner, by the woman with blood, by the dead. He touches them all. And his life and his healing extends to them. And that's what he offers to each one of us. This is salvation. The Greek word is sozo. You are saved. It's holistic. It's rightness. It's health. It's healing. It's life and life forever. It's, it's a massive word that we've simplified. Just so I'm saved from maybe the fires of hell to heaven. It's a holistic transformation. It's life and life to the full. He touches those who draw near and extends his life to them. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So let's draw near to him. Anoint him today. Come with your tears. Come with your lament, both personally and on behalf of the broken. Ask what it would be to anoint him like this, to give him more because he is worthy, because your life is in him, because he loves that deeply. We receive your presence, God. Help us in our spiritual posture as we come, as we sing these songs. May they be sung prayers where we can't voice them aloud. May they come from our heart as we partake in communion. We are again remembering your death your life given for us. We join you in that. We partake. We embrace because we know that life comes through death. That is your promise. We believe. Help us in our unbelief, we pray. Amen.